0: G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au.
1: T's and C's apply. New South Wales, authorisation number TP slash 01005. On
0: 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything.
1: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My guest uh, in this episode really should be the uh, ideal candidate for Inspiring Stories because the word uh, inspired is in the very name of the business uh, that he is a, uh, a founder and, and director of. It uh, is a business that aims to deliver change to individuals and groups, uh, both personally and professionally. He works with everyday people who are striving to be their best selves uh, on a personal level, in business, uh, elite athletes, uh, you name it. Uh, Justin O'Hare is our special guest. Um, And Justin is going to tell us about uh, what has been quite a complicated upbringing uh, and life that he's led and uh, what has uh, taken him to uh, embark on this professional career now where he aims uh, to help people uh, as a coach and as a keynote speaker uh, get the best out of their God-given skills, if I can put it that way. So, Justin, hello and welcome to the program. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to sort of sum up who you are and what you do uh, in a short, sharp way like that, but give us your version. What do you do?
2: Yeah so the really really short version I guess is we we essentially train people in mindset coaching so what we understand from you know and, and probably a lot more science coming out now especially in the sporting industry mm. it's a it's a really obvious when with sporting when when uh, males or females in the professional sporting arena are, are, you know mindset's being affected so You you can have someone who's been a professional athlete for 10, 20 years, um, extremely good at what they do and and lose their mindset and it it affects performance. So a lot of what we do is training people in the skills and tools to be able to work with mindset.
1: So if I come along to one of your sessions or seminars or uh, whatever it is I I sign up to, how am I going to be different at the end of it?
2: Yeah, so it's really about learning how you use the tools of the mindset, things that that actually create the programming inside of our mind. Our, Our minds are no different to a computer, for example, we are programmed the same way as a computer. The only difference is, is that we, we, we're not binary in the respect that if we program black and white, well, it comes out grey sometimes. So it's really about learning the, the the key skills and tools of how to program the mind uh, and, and let go of some of that old stuff that's been holding us back, that old program, not like mm. good enough, um, you know, fear of failure, whatever that is.
1: Often, uh, not always, but, uh, but quite often people who uh, end up in your – line of work, again, if I can use that phrase, have come through some kind of extreme adversity uh, in their lives um, to the point where they want to really explore how their thought processes uh, come to be and and how they're guided by uh, their memories and the thought patterns that they have. Uh, Is that been the case for you? Yeah,
2: look, and it can be really, really simple, Tim. This is probably where a lot of people think, well, you know, I've never had a traumatic upbringing and therefore, you know, I don't understand why why, why I have a fear of failure or why I have a, you know, this aversion to a certain behavior or pattern of behavior that I can't let go of. So a lot of the time when we, the work that we do, when you go back and actually find these events that, you know, that are created in the imagination of people that, that have had significant impacts in their life, it actually has nothing to do with what you think it would. It's never normally a big traumatic event. It's normally something quite simple. Uh, you know, it was working with a, with a gentleman last night and it came from an event where he was five years old and his teacher said to him, you know, we need to make some corrections on your work. And he said, what are corrections? And all the, all the kids laughed, you know. So whenever the emotions go up, Uh, you know, with the imprinting in the brain, especially the age of zero to seven is extremely powerful. So that feeling of I I can never be stupid in front of anybody again, then drives later in life some really unhealthy patterns. So, you know, it doesn't have to be trauma, uh, but certainly a lot of people that come along to see us have had trauma, but it doesn't have to be trauma in order for it to create negative patterns.
1: Yeah. Tell me about your upbringing then. Um, I I very... Loosely alluded to it uh, at the start of the the, the program here, but uh, I understand your mum had some fairly uh, profound mental health issues, and your father sometimes found himself, let's say, on the wrong side of of the law. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can you can you give us the as as much as you can? You know, the warts and all version of of your your upbringing, your childhood.
2: Yeah. So I was the eldest of three kids. Uh, mum was a stay at home mum, and dad was a was a very hard worker. In, in fact. Dad was, was probably too too focused on, on trying to get the family ahead and, and quite often would be working a full time job. Yep. Uh, working driving taxis on the weekend and, you know, doing bits and pieces. He was a mechanic by trade. So he'd be doing bits and pieces at, at home. And so he was a really hard worker. He could never sort of relax and, and mum was a stay at home mum, very normal sort of family, but mum had, had some some significant trauma in her life, some some child abuse. And You know, I think all of that unresolved for a long period of time. Uh, Mum never really dealt with that. And then it was probably around about when I was, I think it was probably about 10 or 11. uh, Dad was sitting around at a party. Uh, I wasn't obviously part of this story. It's a story that mum's told. But yeah, dad was sitting at a a party and someone said, mate, you need to relax. Because my dad was like, he was like one of those kids that had ADHD, I guess. He was pretty full on. And so he said, oh, I can't relax. Never been able to relax. And someone said, here, have this and hand him a joint. And that sort of really then put a... Uh, a downward spiral because what happened was for the first time in his life he felt like he could relax so when you can think about being a person who's had you know 25 30 years of not being able to relax all of a sudden you know one joint you think wow this is amazing oh this is how you do it yeah Yeah. (laughs) yeah so one joint led to you know the occasional weekend and then you know very quickly that led to every night after work and and it wasn't didn't take very long my dad was very very clever Um, so it didn't take very long for him to figure out in order to support a habit, it's much easier to to grow it yourself. And then, you know, he grew in abundance and then started selling it. And, you know, so one thing sort of led to another, but... I think what happened was that mum's unresolved trauma. There's a lot of uh, research around this, but mum's unresolved trauma combined with with drug use and and fairly significant amounts of drug use. But, that
1: she started uh, as a result of your your dad taking up a habit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they both sort of you know become one of those things that some people get home and, and have yeah. a beer after or a beer or wine with their partner after work. Well, that's sort of how it all started, and and one thing led to another. And I think that you know a big part of it was was the trauma that mum had experienced, mm. um, and then on top of that. You know, drug use and and unresolved trauma and, um, you know, when you're spending a lot of time, I guess, stoned, uh, you spend a lot of time reflecting, right? So when you're reflecting on trauma a lot, that that trauma regurgitates itself. And uh, mum ended up, you know, back then, it it was probably 20 years ago now. So back then, we didn't really understand. It was more than 20, about 25 years ago. So we didn't really understand what mental health was. There was not a lot of help around. So when mum started to first, you know, she was telling us she could see God and she could understand, you know, all these, uh, speaking in tongues and, you know, all, all this sort of weird stuff. We were like, wow, this is great. And I remember mm. going to school and saying to my friends, like, my mum can see God, you know, <laughs> and, and you're getting laughed out of the schoolroom and and thinking, what's wrong with these people? Don't they know how clever my mum is? You know. Mm. So we didn't know.
0: Mm.
1: And it wasn't until... You just thought she was having a profound experience. Yeah. We yeah. thought
2: like she's, you know, she's some, some kind of messiah or, you know, and, uh, And a couple of what was really interesting was a couple of her premonitions around things actually came to fruition. So, you know, we had uh, one event where there was a a guy lived across the road and and mum said, oh, my God, he's got a Dodge over there. He shouldn't have that. That's your dad's dad's car. And we were kind of like, oh, mum, look, you know, that can't be true. And and, um, the guy across the road was very, very private, man. And uh, lo and behold, we went over there in the shed and he did have a Dodge. So, you know, I don't know whether she snuck over there and seen it, but to us as kids we were like, wow, this, yeah. this she, it's true. Um, so, you know, we went through that for a couple of years before it really got to a point where mum, I think one particular night, mum had been up for about five days, uh, hadn't slept for five days. And, uh, you know, at sort of 13 years old, I was taking on a role, co-caring assist, I guess, with dad. And uh, dad was doing his best. And, and, you know, again, we just didn't know. So mum ended up in, in and out of hospital for around about eight years. Uh, not you know, sometimes she was good, sometimes she wasn't. Uh, and then, yeah, I became a primary carer mm. uh, when her and dad separated and mum moved in with me, I think for about four years up in North Queensland. So she actually lived with me again for four years, which was great. Um, you know, got her back on her feet. She's, um, yeah, she's a normal functioning person has mm. been for a long time now, but yeah, so that was, it was pretty normal for me to get up in the morning and mum would be in the lounge chair rowing and I'd say, well, What are you doing? Mum would say, "Oh, I'm rowing." So I can see that. Like, where you going? Why? Where you going? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, "I'm a Viking. I'm going to invade England." Oh, Okay, cool. You know, see when I get home from school. Like that was that was fairly normal for me as a as a kid. So I guess it sparked my interest in in what happens inside the mind. Yeah. And and you know, I think for me, there's so much of what I do now that you know that we give people and that we 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 do a lot of uh, pro bono stuff with people in that space because. These tools, are, they're not a magic pill. Nothing's a magic pill, but they certainly are profound at making, mm. um, you know, change and helping people.
1: Yeah. At what point was the the diagnosis of, of schizophrenia put out there?
2: It was probably, I reckon it would have been about 12 or 18 months in. I think, you know, yep. initially it started off with little things. So mum started crystal healing, you know, which the, some of that stuff wasn't that that odd. I mean, it was it was probably, to me, it was... As a young kid, it was just a bit of alternative stuff that my mum was into, and it pretty harmless, sort of, yeah, yeah, pretty harmless. And it sort of, and I'm not saying that by any means that, um, you know, that crystal healing's linked to schizophrenia. Please don't anyone no. listening. That's not the case. But it we sort of started off with that sort of stuff, and mum exploring things and, and looking, I guess, for for solutions for herself. And so it, because it kind of gradually kept crept in the, um, if if you call it the, the strange things sort of crept in gradually. We didn't know. And yeah. it wasn't until a friend of ours or you know lots of friends and family had been around they kind of just went look there's something seriously wrong you got to get her to, to hospital
1: yeah mm,
2: so that's that that's
1: very heavy for you as a in your early teens to be taking on all of that responsibility and, and the role of of carer that's I mean the teens are tough enough
2: yeah look <laughs> I, I loved it you know, and I wouldn't take any of it back. I think that's the, and I know mum quite often, you know, used to apologize about it. You know, I'm really sorry that you went through that. And I used to say, mum, I want you to be sorry. Like this is, ac- we went through this because this is actually, this has made me who I am. There's, mm. there's not one bit of it I'd take back. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody, but I certainly wouldn't take it back. So yeah. there's a lot of fun times.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and what about your, your dad? How did he go with his um, his business on the side?
2: Yeah. Well, dad, dad was into pharmaceuticals, um, yeah. not the legal kind. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so dad was, dad, you know, I mean, he wasn't a, a massive big drug deal or anything like that, but you know, it just got to the point where there was, you know, there was exchanging money for for, for pot and, yep. you know, one thing led to another and, you know, the bags got bigger and the bags of money got bigger and, uh, you know, it got to a point where he did, he did get, uh, you know, police rocked up one day and, and pulled all these plants out and stuff mm. like that. But yeah, look, I mean, it was it, for me. I've never touched drugs. Mum and Dad always had the conversation with us quite young. You know, if you want to try something, come and talk to us. And and you know, I've got little kids. I'm not quite sure that that's how I would handle it. I'm not. I don't know. I haven't got to that point yet. But mm. so we. I never touched it. I never never mm. bothered with it. What didn't interest me because I guess I'd seen in my mind what it had done to, to Mum and Dad. But yep. it's like anything. You know, if you if you abuse alcohol, if you abuse cigarettes. You know, if you have one cigarette a day, you know, it's not going to probably die have lung cancer, but if you, if you have 30 a day, well, you know, your, your chances, like, go, chances up. go up. Chances go up. Yeah. Know,
1: so yeah. How's your relationship with your folks now?
2: Yeah. Well, dad passed away, unfortunately. Um, right. I think in a big part of that was, was his unresolved negative emotions stuff that he carried around. You know, I think dad had a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that in, you know, he just didn't deal with. And, and that's probably typical of, of males that we talk to a lot. Now they get to a point where it's, you know, I'm a man, I shouldn't have. These feelings, I should be able to just toughen up and get through it. So I think Dad did that for a long period of time, uh, and you know, unfortunately, I think it, it took its toll. Uh, the you know constant and, and what we understand now about the stress response, constant mm. stress uh, took its toll on his body, and yeah. uh, he passed away about uh, about four and a half years ago, and only five years ago. Yeah,
1: and, and were you guys? close still yeah, through yeah. all of his, uh, his his wild adventures.
2: Yeah look I mean as a teenager I wasn't yeah. dad and I really clashed a lot and, and I was very uh, I guess probably the word submissive dad was very aggressive and I think a lot of that was his anger towards you know he didn't know what to do. He had three yeah. kids to try and bring up and he had mum who was in and out of a, a mental hospital and, and he felt like everything in his life revolved around everybody else except him I'm sure mm. of it. So yeah look we had a, we had a good relationship um, we, we had a really good chat uh, probably about two or three years after him and mum split up and, and we sort of cleared the air on a lot of things, which I'm, I'm glad we got to do before he passed away. Uh, but yeah, my relationship with mum is great. We, mm. you know, we, we probably talk like best friends. That's
1: great. Mm.
2: We need to take a break, but after that, I uh, want to hear how you um, well ended up
1: in real estate. Yeah, right. Of all things. Of all things. I mean, I'm sure all of those uh, skills you have in kind of uh, working out people's thought patterns probably apply quite well in the, yeah. <laughs> in the real estate game. Um, but again, that's uh, that's it's an interesting career path to take, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that right after we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Justin O'Hare is our special guest. Back with more in a
0: moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring
1: Stories. Justin O'Hare is our special guest, uh, founder of Inspired Results, which we'll get to uh, in more detail in a moment, uh, Justin. Um, and I know you had a career in, in real estate at one point as well, but let's just backtrack a little bit further than that. Um, with everything that was going on at home, you know, with troubles with mum and dad. Uh, was there much time for, for schoolwork for you?
2: Well, my my dad would not let us do homework.
1: That he wouldn't was, let you do it?
2: No. That was one of the rules, Was that, and he used to have that conversation with our teachers that if you Why? can't, you've got my... His thing was, you've got my kid for six and a half hours a day. That's enough. Yeah. If yeah. you can't teach them... would have them, thought he
1: was a legend for that, wouldn't he? Well, <laughs>
2: yeah. It made school hard, right? Because there was it was probably things that, that I missed out on because I wasn't doing homework. I,
1: so you'd get time, home from school and he would say, no... You're not doing it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I started high school year seven, that's when it really kicked off because the schoolwork, the homework really ramped up from primary school to high school. Mm. So when I started year seven and that was in Victoria, uh, you know, that's when I was getting sent home with schoolwork and I was struggling probably at school as well. And with all the stuff going on at home, the last thing that you want to do, I mean, school was, was was a reprieve for me. It was it was my time to actually go and have some fun, and you didn't have any responsibilities. You know, as I said, I was the eldest of three kids, so for me, getting home, doing the dishes, you know, cleaning the house, looking after things, helping dad in the shed, and, and all that sort of stuff was was you know what we did at home, and looking after mum, and and trying to deal with that stuff at school. It was like it was like it was like kindergarten for me. It was it was playground. Mm. Yeah,
1: you finished up at school after year nine. Yeah, so which is a little earlier than. Than, than most people would yep. uh, would pull the pin on their schooling. Um, why so early? It, it, it was just a an environment that you that you didn't thrive in.
2: Yeah, I really I, I struggled at school. I think I was I was I didn't have the ability to. Uh, sit down and focus on things that probably like a lot of boys, but I didn't have the ability to sit down and focus on things that I, I wasn't interested in. And later in life, found that to be a strength, not a weakness. And I think that's one of the things that we, you know, we schools cater to the majority of kids and mm. the kids that fall outside of that can just get left behind. And you know, I think we do a lot better job of it now, but I think that there's still... You know, it's a lot of work to go in that space of those kids because if you look at most entrepreneurs in the world, if you look at most of the successful business owners, they are people that, that didn't finish school, that didn't mm. go to university. So it's, you know, there's going to be something behind that.
1: Yeah. Well, what was it for you then? For me? I mean, if you, if you could really sort of just take yourself back to being that kid, 13, 14, you know, in the classroom, what was it that just broke down?
2: Well, I think we traveled around Australia for a year. So we, we left uh, when I was 15 and mum and dad took us around Australia, part of that was dad thought, well, if mum's kept busy all the time and when we're traveling, we're going places that her mind will fix itself. And again, yep. that's the, 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 I guess, the limited knowledge that we were provided with back then when around mental health. So we traveled for a year, we got back to school and I, I, I remember just having the conversation with kids, you know, and they're talking about home and away and TV shows and, you know, like just kid stuff. Mm. And, and I'm kind of going, what's the meaning of life? And I'm thinking to myself, "This I'm in the wrong place." So, you know, that afternoon at school, something had happened, and I don't remember what it was, and I don't even know whether it had anything to do with me. But there was, there was, you know, we went to a pretty rough school, and uh, there was going to be a fight, and I was the only one that didn't know what the fight was about. So I kind of thought it was it was me that was going to be in the fight, um, and I bailed, and I said to mum and dad, "I'm not going back. I'll go and find a job. I'll go and do whatever." And uh, mum and dad said to me, "Well, if you if you want to leave school, you need to get an apprenticeship." and uh, yeah, I just I said yep, no worries, and I pounded the pavement as a as a I think it was fifteen and nine months or whatever it was when you could leave school, and pounded the pavement with my resume and, until I got a, a job, which thankfully two very very lovely people who who really kind of probably guided those early years when things were on off the rails at home. Um, Trevor and Allison Williams uh, they had a business called Travel Automotive, and and yeah they kind of took me under their wing. It was mm. a quasi mum and dad really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what did you
1: do? What was the apprenticeship in?
2: As a mechanic, yeah. yeah. So it was what I knew. I grew up racing cars at, at thirteen. I was racing on the track, um, so I, I knew cars. It was my passion. I loved working on cars, so it was an easy, easy yeah. decision to make.
1: Kind of, kind of therapy for you, I imagine. Yeah, they yeah. can't talk back at you. No, <laughs> they can't ask anything of you. It's just you trying to, you know, put your your engineering brain to work.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. You still tinker with cars now? Is it still something that you? You love doing? Yeah, I've gone back to it in the in the yep. last probably year. Uh, I've bought a bought a, a WX just to do some some track days and stuff, and mm. uh, it was it was good. It's kind of therapeutic, but a bit of skin off the knuckles reminds you why I got out of it too. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so racing cars again from that young age is a fairly unusual thing uh, for any kid.
2: Yeah, I don't think anything do, about my, my childhood was normal to me. Really. No, <laughs> no, I'm
1: I'm I'm really starting to pick that up. Yeah. Um, Again racing cars was it, was it something that you wanted to do or was it something that your your dad was interested in so you gravitated towards it as well yep. were you seeking a
2: thrill and an adrenaline rush somewhere yeah well I think it was it was you know we had a uh, five acre property my dad had started racing a couple of years earlier and and was quite successful at a club level I think he won a couple of club championships uh, mum got into racing so uh, before she got sick she was uh, she was club champion in the in the females Uh, racing so you know that was that was sort of fun that was what we did on every second weekend Mm. um, in the in the race season so you know dad had this old charger and uh, he said to me look you can either do it up as a road car or you can turn into a race car and and I wish I wish I'd have Kept it now, made it a oh, road car. I was
1: going to ask, have you still got it?
2: I wish, I wish, <laughs> I wish. But, uh, you know, as a 13-year-old kid, all I wanted to do was get in and drive fast. So, yeah. you know, it was what our family did. Uh, so we, we built it into a race car, and uh, it was my 13th birthday present. And wow. uh, I raced it when I was 12. It was supposed to be, I think, from memory the juniors were supposed to be, uh, 14. So, uh, we dodged up a, a birth certificate, you know, the <laughs> least of things sure that dad I dodged up. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so that was, uh, you know, dad was always one for bending the rules to get the result, which is, you know, it's played out in my life very, very successfully in, in business yeah. is, you know, challenge the status quo. But, uh, yeah, so that was what happened as a 12 year old kid. I remember, uh, my first race sitting in the, in the, In the driver's seat, I had uh, two phone books and uh, a couple of pieces of foam to get me up to see over the dash. And uh, the guy that I was, uh, he had to have a co-driver. So the guy that was co-driving with me was, I had a helmet that was too big. He was, he had his hand on my head holding my helmet down because every time we got the back straight, the the helmet was actually flicking up and the mouthpiece was going over my eyes. Uh, I didn't back off and uh, we got back and he said to me, I'm never getting in the car with you. You're crazy.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Quite a wild childhood. Yeah, does, but, I suppose it seems normal when you're living it, yeah, to some extent, yeah. Um, but pretty wild, yeah.
2: Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty crazy. I mean, you know, there was there was lots of stuff. There was lots of fun that happened. I mean, my parents were very loving parents. I think I remember when Dad got arrested. Um, must have been eighteen or nineteen, I think, when he when they uh, finally caught up with him. But we, we were sitting there, and one of the policemen said to he, said to us three kids, me, my brother, and sister, and said, "Well, you know, you guys seem like really normal kids. Like <laughs> we deal with this stuff every day, and normally kids are, you know." Kids that are grown up in this environment of rat bags, like what's how come you guys are so normal and we said look m- mum and dad make bad decisions mum's got mental health issues but at the end of the day they love us mm. and that was probably the thing that no matter what happened I mean me and my dad had a lot of conflict probably between the age of 13 till when I moved out of home uh you know and when I say conflict it was him yelling at me and me being extremely passive because i, I I looked up to my dad; he was my hero, mm. and uh, so yeah, I sort of bailed at every opportunity I could when he was upset, which was most days. But mm. you know, I know that he was not upset at me; it was, it yeah. was he was upset at it life, was just he,
1: frustrated generally.
2: He couldn't get the help that he wanted. Yeah, that was the other thing.
1: Did he? If you don't mind me asking, did he? Did he do all right with his um, illicit <laughs>
2: industry that he was running there? Did he make a bit of money out of it? Yeah, he he did. I was telling some of this story yesterday; it was quite interesting. You know, when when the uh, police rocked up, um, you know they they said to him, "Look, we you know we." we're here to serve a warrant and dad said, yep, no worries. And and they said, okay, we want you to take us down and show us where the plants are. So dad walked down and and showed them, but you know, he was, he was clever. He Mm -hmm. was street smart and uh, he knew not to say anything. And so they thought it was an open shut case. They walked out, grabbed all the plants, chucked in the trailer. They said, look, we'll take you in about a 10 minute interview and and you'll be home again. And uh, they got him in there and they said, okay, so, you know, just what, what do we find at the house today? And dad said, I'm not sure. And, and the look on their face, Dad, I mean, I wasn't there, but Dad said the look on their face was just complete shock. You know, he'd been so compliant to that point. And uh, he just said, yep, not sure. And then he said, uh, they said, well, you know, what do we find at the back of the house? And he said, no comment. And he was there for about five hours, I think. And and in the end, they...
1: Just giving them nothing.
2: Yeah, just gave them nothing. And he, he made it really hard for them. And again, it's, you know, it's one of those things, I guess, when you're in that in that lifestyle, uh, you have to kind of know what you can and can't say to to get yourself out of trouble. And I think... I think the time they caught, maybe I think they pulled about 30 plants out of the backyard. um, And they said to him, you know, they said, we, you know, we put it to you that we came to your house today and found, uh, found something at the back. And what would that be? And dad said, oh, it's basketball ring. (laughs) You know, so he kind of just drung them along and I think they just got super frustrated and they, they, um, you know, when he did go to court, they kind of cut a deal. And Mm. uh, so, you know, he got away pretty lightly. I think he had about a $500 fine. Mm. Um, But yeah, so. Did you do well out of it? I mean, yeah. I uh, there's my sister tells a story about one day when she was. She said, oh, "I've got to go to the shop." Uh, this was much, we were much older, but she said, oh, "I've got to go to the shop and go and get some stuff. Do you want anything?" And dad was actually up visiting. Uh, he lived in the bus we travelled in pretty much for the rest of his life, and uh, so he still did a bit of travelling. But yeah, he, my sister said, I oh, you know, do you want anything?" I'm going to the shop, and, and he said, "Oh, I'll give you some money coming here." And he had a shop, shopping bag full of cash, mm, mm. you know. So. Um, but, I mean, I don't know what he spent it on. It's probably buried somewhere. Who knows?
1: He didn't give you the codes before he passed
2: away? No, mate. I'm, <laughs> the, me and my sister map, talk about it all the time. No, <laughs> you know, he lost it a lot, you know, and, yeah. and he buried it in uh, in plastic containers. So, I don't know, maybe maybe you can the get The
1: old a, paper notes, notes decayed by now. Container. Yeah, probably. Um, just before we get to the break, how did you end up in the world of real estate? I yeah. mean, it takes a certain personality to thrive
2: in that environment. What was it? that gave you the impression that you would go well um complete accident complete accident so i'd been i worked my way up from being a mechanic and yep. i didn't i wanted to get into managing management um because again it was what it was wanting to help people mm. um and then i met my wife up in my well, our wife up in north queensland she was uh she was probably you know knew her for about two or three weeks i think and then you know we really really liked each other so you know you do what you do when you're meet somebody you like and you, you knock them up, Tim. So, that, <laughs> you know, like I said, no, nothing about my life is normal. So, uh, so yeah, so she got pregnant pretty early in the piece, yeah. uh, instant family. So we moved, we moved back to Melbourne yeah. and, uh, I had no idea what I was going to do for a job. I, I left a, a pretty good job up there and, uh, sold my house, sold everything that we had up there and moved down to Victoria and uh, a friend of a mutual friend of, of, um, a real estate agent in town and, and Elise, he said, why don't you go and try real estate? And, it's uh restless history.
1: Yeah. Is there a good story there though?
2: There is, absolutely, yeah. All
1: right, I'll get you to share that right after we take another break. Thank you, Justin. Justin O'Hare is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are featuring the, uh, the very colourful and inspiring story of, uh, of Justin O'Hare. Uh, Justin, you're in Melbourne. Uh, as you put it, you've just uh, knocked up your <laughs> the, the lady who was lucky enough to then become your wife um and you move into real estate from fixing cars to into real estate how did you find that
2: it was interesting so i remember a friend of mine said why don't you try real estate you know yep. you're a great personality i'm sure people are you know really warm to you and and i i had an aversion to sales people you know coming out of the car industry it was always the sales versus the service industry so you know i was kind of like ah oh, you know that's the dark side it's the dark side right yeah, uh, yeah. so i didn't want to go into sales and i thought oh, well, i need, i needed a job i needed money and so I, I went in, uh, I'd done an interview for a, a job in, in the city as a, a trainer for mechanics, and uh, I walked into this, this you know, in Emerald. I do you know where Emerald is, up in, yep. uh, up in the hills. Yep. Walked into Emerald, and uh, a guy, Justin Barrett, one of my very best mates uh, at the time, I didn't know him at the time, but he came out dancing uh, from behind the wall, and I was like, this is a pretty fun, hip place to work. And, and he said, oh, sorry, mate, didn't know you were there. You know, what, what are you after? And so I'm after a job. He said, "I'll come through." So we sat down. We had probably about a, a twenty-minute, you know, chat. And I'm thinking, "This is going really well." You know, I'm going to get a job. And he said, "Oh, so um, look, you know, what what are you what do you really after?" And I said, "Well, you know, I want a want a job." And he said, "Well, we'll go get the boss." I was like. <laughs> you're not the boss like. <laughs> so but you know that was my introduction and everyone there was great and you know it was a, it was a good culture so i started there and and I, I again it was one of those opportunities to go and work in an industry where you're helping people mm. so for me i kind of thought oh this is it you know this is
1: which is not how everyone would perceive that industry necessarily no well that's the, probably- that you're not there 100 percent to help people yeah. yeah um but you were the exception to that rule were you?
2: well i think it's interesting, right? Because I think if if you take that view on anything that you do, if yeah. you're there to serve people. Mm. And you think, right? How can I best serve people? If that's your mentality on life, the money side of it just
1: takes. I it mean, no itself. disrespect to some of my good friends are real estate yeah. agents, so I, I mean no disrespect to them. But there there is a perception, isn't there, that that perhaps they don't always have, you know, the the buyer or the seller's best interest at heart. I'll yeah. Just, do, that's my disclaimer. <laughs> Carry on.
2: <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, and I had some great mentors. I mean, there was, uh, you know, there was some really, really good agents in that office and uh, Justin being one. Um, yeah. You know, so I had some really good mentors around what, what good looked like. And, you know, being a small country town, there wasn't the opportunity to rip people off because it was just way too small of a community. So yeah. I got to learn real estate in, I guess, a really ethical, fun, friendly way. And, and to me, that was my opportunity to go and help people, whether it was, you know, there'd been a death in the family and they needed to sell the house or there's divorce or whatever, um, you know, it was my opportunity to get in there and, and chat to people. And I kind of was probably life coaching well before I knew what life coaching was.
1: It, it sounds like it. It sounds like, you know, when you talk about your background, what you do now seems entirely natural. Yeah. Like you were, you were cut out for it. You've been perfectly trained, if you like, uh, through your childhood. But uh, tell us what then brought you over to the West.
2: Yeah. So I was working in, in another office. I left there and I was managing a sales team in pakenham in victoria and uh yeah i just i was burnt out i was i was working way too hard i i I immersed myself into that job i i got sacked from a management job when i was about 22 and i always said if i get another opportunity to to do a management job i'm not going to fail and uh what what that did and this is what we talk about you know people creating patterns but what that did was create a pattern for me where i was far too absorbed into trying to make a business successful and and be the most successful because (coughs) i excuse me, I was, I was terrified of failure. Mm. So it drove some really poor behaviors and it wasn't until we were at the Melbourne Zoo and my daughter was uh, probably three at the time and she's like, look, daddy, look, the meerkats. And I'm like, hang on a second. I was on the phone and I looked at my wife's face and I went, yep, this is this is not going well. This
1: is the moment, <laughs> yeah. Was the
2: moment. So, so I got an opportunity. A friend of mine worked at, at BHP and he said, why don't you come across here? They've got some, some jobs going. I uh, did an interview, flew over and, and that was it. That's how we ended up in, in WA. Yeah,
1: there you go. Uh, you've obviously broken out of that role as well to found inspired results uh that's been going now for three or so years um that's a that's a big move to go out on your own though isn't it and make a profession out of just building those connections with people
2: yeah absolutely it was i mean I, I did a couple of years as a business consultant under another organization so i sort of had a bit of a soft entry into what i'm doing but mm. it was more around working with businesses uh, whereas inspired results really about working with with the person whether it's a business owner or, or a team but it's really about working with the mindset rather than you know structurally or hr or, or you know any of the sort of systems-based stuff yeah. that's looking at the mindset
1: yeah not the boring stuff yeah well that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> So, what, I mean, what do you do? I mentioned at the start, you you try to, I suppose, get the best best out of people, whether they're looking to improve themselves, uh, just generally as a person, as an athlete, uh, as a business leader, whatever it may be. Um, but how do you do that? What do you actually do?
2: Well, the first thing is finding out what the person wants. I mean, you ask most people what they want,
1: they'll but even a- is if they is what they want generally the thing that they should want or do you sometimes have to even reshape that?
2: Well, that's the thing. When you ask most people what they want, they'll tell you what they don't want. Yeah. So, you know, you say to people, you know, whether it's with anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's lack of sport performance, you know, you say to them, what do you want? An athlete will say, well, I want to stop failing or I want to stop, you know, missing the tackles or I want to stop missing goals. Um, You talk to somebody who's got depression, they say, I want to feel better or, you know, "I, I want to stop having depression. I want to stop feeling like this. So, and that's that's the way our brain is, is is wired. We're wired to look at what is the threat and, and to avoid the threat. But in, in our modern society, the threats are not the real threats that we used to experience. There's no tigers chasing around. There's no bears chasing us around. Our, a lot of our threats are perceived threats or, or imagined threats that mm. don't even actually exist. Yep. So the first part is to work out what they do want. And most people will, will give you a list of stuff they don't want. And it's that concept. If I say to you, Tim, don't think of a blue tree, mm. um, you know, you think of a blue tree. Of course. Tree. So the first part is to work out, okay, well, what do you want? And sometimes that can take, you know, two or three, two or three sessions, in our training. Sometimes that might take a, a seven day training before someone gets to the point where they go, ah, that's what I want.
1: Yeah. One of the techniques that you uh, latched onto in a big way, uh, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. Um, tell us what that is in, in simple terms.
2: Yeah. It's, it's the study of excellent behavior and how you can produce that excellent behavior in other people. So uh n l. p started back in the seventies uh, mm. like a lot of a lot of the different types of psychological um modalities back then, and it really looked at how do you get someone who is successful at something and and kind of reprogram that into a person who wants to be so you get an a f l player who's who's not playing so well, how do you get them to think like a really successful a f l player and and if they could then would they therefore become a successful a more successful player and of course the answer is yes because yeah they, the way, whatever the body whatever the mind thinks the body pretends um, to produce. Let's
1: just pretend for a minute. <laughs> You're going to have to use your imagination here. Let's pretend I'm an elite AFL player, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm in a bad patch. Yeah. Um, and I sit down to you and say, Justin, help me. I'm missing goals. You know, my, my, my timing's off. Uh, I'm not in the zone. What are you going to do?
2: Well first things to figure out, you know, if this if this is a mindset, an overall overarching mindset belief system. So is this a I'm not good enough, I don't believe in myself, or is yep. this something more specific? And if it's more specific, then we work on that. So for example, we've got uh, young a young soccer player we're working with a couple of years back and he was a very talented young kid and we we went down to the very specifics of what was happening. So he was getting the ball a lot, he was getting a lot of shots on goal, but he wasn't hitting any. And when we actually sat down and worked out his strategy for, for goal kicking, he was getting to the point where you imagine we, we, we get the structure for what they're doing and slow it right down and get them to talk me through step-by-step every single millimeter of movement, what they're thinking. And what we found was that just before his foot hit the ball, he was saying to himself, don't miss. Mm. So we changed that. I said to him, well, you tell me, what would you say if you were, if you're going to score a goal? And he said, back of the net. And, and we did a little bit of the NLP techniques, mm-hmm. uh, a hypnosis technique that we use as well, and had him uh, at an unconscious level reprogram his brain so that when his boot was about to hit that ball, he'd say back of the net. And he went out the very next week and scored two goals. He hadn't scored a goal, I think, for the whole season. So
1: Amazing. Mm-hmm. There's hope for me yet. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'll ask you more then right after we take another break, Justin, particularly about hypnosis, uh, fascinated by uh, hypnosis and what you can do with that. Uh, This is Inspiring Stories. Justin O'Hare is our special guest.
0: We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim
1: McMillan is my name, my special guest, uh, is the founder of inspired results justin o'Hare justin uh, hypnosis i'm fascinated by it but i'm also a bit scared of it yeah i don't think i've ever been properly hypnotized but what happens one why is it useful for you in trying to sort of i suppose break through people's mental patterns that might be holding them back
2: yeah so with with hypnosis people are in and out of trance all day so anything that you do on autopilot is is a form of trance it's not what we probably have the biggest issue with our industry is that people confuse hypnosis with what they see on stage, mm-hmm. and and you know there's there's some really good stage hypnotherapists out there that that make a, a you know a really good show, and there's some that that probably do a bit of damage to our industry over the last sort of thirty years. So hypnosis, from the point of view of where we use it, is is kind of like if you imagine in a room, if you put a sixty watt light bulb in a room, you can light up a room, and that's kind of how we our brain focuses most of the time. We focus on a bit of everything. But what hypnosis allows us to do is get a person to a point of view where it's like focusing that that 60 watts through a, a laser beam, and a laser beam will cut through steel. So that's really what hypnosis is, getting to a really, really focused state of mind. And quite often you hear people say things like, oh, hypnosis for people that are weak-minded or gullible, uh, and that's certainly not the case. In my my experience, the people who are really at that high-level level uh, elite athletes that can really hyper focus they are the absolute best hypnotic subjects because they've got the ability to focus
1: yeah so when you're talking to um people from right across the the community athletes uh business people whoever uh, what what what's common uh to the way you deal with all of those different people who are probably you know different in the outcomes they're trying to achieve but what what's what's common to how you talk to these people and get them to their that that point of reaching the goal
2: probably self-discovery so mm. a lot of the work that we do probably 80% of the work that we do is self-discovery yeah and and 20% is the actual tools and techniques so a lot of it is what do you want where do you want to be where do you see yourself getting to because most people are, are in their problem and that's their fear right so we're in the, the I, I'm not like, good enough when you're in that fear it's all you're focused on mm. and so a lot of it is is working on that stuff and again the 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 programming that happens inside of our mind and when that happens is, is normally in the imprint stage so the age of zero to seven is the most common phase of where people create the limiting decisions about themselves so i'm not good enough i can't do this so i shouldn't earn enough money the imposter syndrome stuff we get a huge amount of imposter syndrome stuff as people start to climb the corporate ladder because people are you know given a, a promotion based on oh you're really good at spinning spanners or you're really good at you know at, at getting closing sales so you must be the sales manager you must be the, the service manager so you get a lot of that sort of stuff so mm. yeah it's probably that imposter syndrome and, yeah. and the belief systems that follow that
1: do you consider yourself a guru
2: no not at all not at all i think <laughs> do I'm you aspire a, to be one no not at all i think <laughs> when it comes to being a guru my whole thing is is that i want to i want to if I was going to be the guru of something it'd be of asking the right question because yeah. I think when you ask the right question people self-discover what they need to do and I had this experience last night with a very very close uh person that's very close in my life and you know we, we were doing some self-discovery stuff and and this guy's been super successful in his life someone I really look up to and and just asking some questions about how you know how he feels and, and same thing you know imposter syndrome 60 odd years old and and super successful in his job and, and everyone loves the guy, but he's, he's got this imposter syndrome mm. kicking around. And so, you know, asking the right questions, I'm watching him, he, he's smiling because he knows me well enough and he's smiling at me going, yeah, I know what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, if it's going to be the guru of something, it's asking the right question.
1: Yeah. Is it ever a burden to you? I mean, pe- I imagine people when they have interactions with you, they're, they're thinking, oh, here's an opportunity, I can learn something about myself, I can get to the next stage, whatever it may be. Is that ever a burden to you, that
2: people are always kind of seeking something from you? No, not really. I mean, I think when you ask the right question, and yep. that's, that's where I say, you know, be the yep. guru of asking the, the right question. When you ask the right question, people very quickly learn that I'm not there to give advice. I'm not here to tell you mm-hmm. what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Yep. It's it's ask the right question. Have that person come up with the answer themselves.
1: Yep. All right. and And just finally, inspired results. How do people connect with inspired results
2: yes you can jump on our website we've got a heap of free resources on there everything from personality profiling there's lots of free trainings on on mindset and how it works and how you can integrate that stuff in your family with your sporting club with your friends uh, and the people that you love and then we've also got a, a program which we've just developed we have found that our seven-day program which is our practitioner program uh, that's nationally recognized but we found that some people don't want to come and do a full seven-day program they don't have the time yep. so we've developed an, an online version which people can either consume via audio uh, through SoundCloud or through uh, through our actual website, through video if they want to do it that way. So,
1: I'll give it a shot. You God a knows shot. there's plenty to improve on. <laughs> 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 Justin, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. I Me appreciate time. it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story.
0: You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.